God of a particular people. And these people are not particularly awesome. Now, there's a conundrum and a potential conflict. And so Moses, sitting down in the wilderness, having led the children of Israel out of Egypt, he's trying to describe to them what this God is like. But remember, it's not like he's trying to defend the existence of God. They can see him. Sometimes we forget as we read the Genesis account that, God, that Moses is writing, in the beginning, God. And they go, who? And he goes, you know, God, the one that's right there in a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of smoke and cloud by day. Him. This is what he's like. It's presupposed his existence. Do you see? And so Moses will tell them all the stories starting with Abraham to let them know that God is faithful. Now, we started our sermon series a couple weeks ago, and we said in Genesis chapter 12, our big idea was that God is faithful. Last week, we looked at chapter 15, and we said that God is faithful. This week, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 17, and we're going to say that God is faithful because that's the refrain. And, but let me explain what I mean when I say God is faithful. Moses is not trying to say that God, one that you can see like on fire by night and a cloud in the day. He, it's not just that he's the kind of God who acts or behaves faithfully. I think sometimes we misinterpret when we say God is faithful. But what I mean is the equative verb, God, is faithful. It is one of his attributes. He's not a, it's not an adjective. It's actually a noun. God is faithful. Faithfulness. That's what he does. To not be faithful would be tantamount to God no longer being God. And he can't do that. He cannot ungod God. That's the one thing that he cannot do. And so Moses is trying to explain to all the children of Israel, and by extension, us, that our God is the faithful one. He is the definition of faithfulness. Now, quick review. Moses is telling the story about Abram, who's sitting in Ur of the Chaldeans on the Euphrates River. He's a pagan, idolatrous, moon worshiper with a barren wife. God says, get up and go. Abram got up and went. They made it to Haran. They come down. God comes to him in chapter 12 and gives him a promise. I'm going to give you land, this land, offspring, many, many offspring and blessing. I'm going to prosper you. And almost immediately, Abram goes down into Egypt and he's a curse to the entire country. And yet God restores it and redeems it and brings him back up. Abram has 10 years of freakish prosperity. He defeats all these warlords and all these kings. He meets Melchizedek, the king of Jerusalem, who's a priest before Yahweh somehow. And then he sort of starts to just wonder what's going on. It's been 10 years. Where, where is this God? God comes to Abram again in Genesis 15, and he makes a covenant. It says, Abram, I know it's been 10 years no big whoop. I've got this. I'm faithful. And God makes covenant and binds himself to be the provider of land, offspring, and blessing. Abram puts into a deep, paralyzed trance and sees that God himself walks through the pieces of the covenant for the both of them. It's unprecedented. But then two years goes by and still nothing, still no son. And so, Sarah, listen, I'm not judging. I'm just saying by this point, she's about 77. He's about 87. And she's like, look, this God showed up and told us we were going to have a son, but it's been another two years. And then Sarah basically says, look, God made me barren. This is his fault. That's always a bad idea, incidentally. God made me barren. Isn't it written in your Bible that God helps those who help themselves? No, that's actually by Ben Franklin and Port Richard's Almanac, and Ben Franklin's dead that is not a biblical truth, not in the slightest. And so Sarai says, hey, Abe, I've got an idea. Why don't you 
air quotes, go into my handmaid servant, Hagar, the Egyptian. Oh, that's right. Remember when Abram went down to Egypt and he really wasn't supposed to? He brought back with him Hagar, Sarai's servant. Now, what you get is this huge palm-to-forehead moment where Abram, you think, is going to go, why, no, may it never be. I am yours and yours alone. And he goes, (laughs) rot on. (laughs) Like zero resistance whatsoever. And so Abram goes in and she, Hagar, conceives. And now you're thinking, okay, well, okay, all right, that's a little bit squirrely, a little bit weird, but the promise God made is at least now come to fruition because in Genesis 15, God tells Abram, no, your servant from Damascus, that Gentile, will not be your heir. Your heir will come from your own body. And Abram's going, looky there. I scratched that one off the list. Done. And then we get the tragic events of Genesis chapter 16. Almost immediately, Hagar starts to flex and says, hey, I'm pregnant with the master's child. Look at you sitting all over there, 77. How's that working out for you? And they hate each other and they fight. And finally, Sarah goes to Abram and says, this is on you. You did this to me. To which Abram, you think is going to go, oh no, you didn't. Oh no. Abram doesn't bow up. He just goes, I don't care. It's not my problem. You deal with her as you want. And the text says that Sarai was anach. With Hagar. It's the same word that the Egyptians used, the same word that was used of the Egyptians as they afflicted and oppressed the Israelites in Egypt. She mistreats her, possibly even with violence. And so Hagar leaves. She flees, and the text is giving us some context clues in terms of geography. She's heading back to Egypt when the angel of the Lord comes to her. The angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is almost always a pre-incarnate Christ. It is the sendable self of the Godhead Trinity. And he says, no, 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 no. You return and you submit. You're going to have a child. And you will name him Ishmael because the Lord has heard your affliction. Ishmael's name means God hears. God listens. That's interesting. And so Hagar, it says she proclaimed the name of the Lord. That means she worships and she names God. Now, it's interesting. She worships the one standing before her who receives that worship. That's how we know it's not just an angel. It's the angel of the Lord, which is a pre-incarnate Christ. He receives that worship, and she worships, and she says, now I know that you are Jehovah Roi. You are the God that sees. You are the seeing God. You are the God that sees me. So I want you to get this. The angel of the Lord tells her, you name your child Ishmael because God listens, God hears. And she responds and says, you're also the God that sees. This is the first time in your Bible that any human being ever gets to name God. You would think he would go, no, no, no. You don't get to give me a name tag, but God loves it. It's the first time anybody ever gives God a name, and it happens to be (laughs) a woman a Gentile, and a slave. You've heard me say this before, but every Jewish man to this day, Orthodox, the first thing they say when they get up in the morning is they say, Oh, Lord God, I thank thee that thou didst not make me, because they all speak King James still, that thou didst not make me a woman or a Gentile or a slave. Interestingly, slightly coinky-dinkily, In Acts 16, we have the very first church ever planted in Western civilization in the town of Philippi, and it is started by a woman, a slave, and a Gentile. You don't think God has a wonderful, wonderful sense of humor? Well, Sarai 
and Hagar have to unite. And at this point, God returns to Abram. Let's pick this up in Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17. We're still studying that God is faithful. So more time has passed. Abram is now, 13 years have passed. Abram's 99. Sarah is about 90. Ishmael is now 13 years old. So there's some pretty big time change. Lots has changed in Abram's life in the last 25 years. But God's faithfulness has not changed. God has not changed. God's promise has not changed. God's covenant has not changed. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord, that's Yahweh, appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Now, we need to talk about this for just a moment. In chapter 12, we get God making a promise. In chapter 15, we get God making a covenant. In chapter 17, we're going to see God making an oath. In all three chapters, all three times, it's a reiteration, and it is an amplification of the faithfulness of God. God understands what Abram is needing. God is intimately aware when God sees that Abram has defeated all the warlord kings, the four kings that defeated the five kings, and then Abram and his servants go out and they defeat those four kings, God says, Abram, I want to remind you, I am your shield. When Abram returns with all the prosperity and the king of Sodom comes out to offer him all this abundance and treasure and material blessing, and Abram refuses it and instead tithes to the king of Jerusalem, Melchizedek, God says, Abram, well done. I want to remind you, I am your very great reward. And now the text says, and Abram was 99 years old. His wife is 90. And Abram is greeted by God who says, Abram, you are as good as dead. But I am God Almighty. I am El Shaddai. And at this point, the door gets kicked open. Amy Grant walks in wearing a cardigan, and she sings, El Shaddai. No, that's not really what happened. She wasn't there yet. Those of you of a certain age are like, who's Amy Grant? Google it. She loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life. El Shaddai. God addresses himself as El Shaddai. Now, this word has got a whole bunch of different conversations and dialogues and discussions. What does El Shaddai actually mean? It's used 48 times in the Old Testament. 31 of those times are in the book of Job. It means God the, the Almighty, but there's also a subtle Hebraism play on words here. It's God the Almighty, but it's also the supplier of every intimate need. So it's like God has said, Abram, I'm your shield. Abram, I'm your great reward. Abram, you're as good as dead. But I am God Almighty, the all-sufficient. I know your circumstances look a certain way, but look this way. I am God the Almighty. I am the all-sufficient one. Here in verse 1, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Now, we've said that the covenant that God cuts with Abram in Genesis 15 is unilateral. God takes all the responsibility. In chapter 12, he makes him a promise and just says, Abram, I'm going to do this. Here in this chapter, God will say, I will 12 times. He will say, my covenant nine times. This is God doing it, God's responsibility. And yet, we experience attention because God also says, walk before me and be blameless. Now, when he says walk before me, that's not that God's always directly behind you and you're having to do this because that, that, that would be weird. Now, walk in your Bible, both Old and New Testament, is a metaphor for your daily persistent pattern of life. How do you actually engage in dialogue with your spouse, with your kids, with your coworkers? How do you drive on Broadway when that maroon minivan cuts you off again? 
How do you actually conduct your life every single moment of the day? That is your walk. The Apostle Paul loved the imagery of walk. That's the book of Ephesians. Walk, walk, walk. God says, I want you to walk before me. Not in fear of me, before me. Walk as if you have a persistent awareness that I am the God who sees, I am the God who hears. Because he is, do you see? Walk before me and be blameless. Now, this word gets misinterpreted, misapplied all the time. Blameless is not sinless, because that would be impossible. But it is blameless. The Hebrew is tamim. God says, I want you to be tamim. It's the same sort of expression that you would use for a sacrificial lamb, spotless, without blemish. It is the idea in the Hebrew notion of being sincere and single-hearted, not double-minded, not hypocritical, letting your yes be yes and your no be no. That's what God wants of us. There is a responsibility that we carry. Is God responsible for accomplishing his promise, his covenant, and his oath? Absolutely, 100%, you betcha. And we have a responsibility to walk before him blameless. Our lives in this world, in this time, in this life matter. Walk before me and be blameless. So that, or you might see it better, in that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Be super careful, and I'm gonna nerd out and word out here in just a moment. This is not placing a condition on Abram. It's placing Abram in a condition. It's not an if-then statement. Abram, you better walk before me blameless or the whole thing falls apart. No, this is the climate. This is the context. This is the position and the posture that I want you to live your life so that you can enjoy and experience my provision. It's not a condition. It's a condition. Now, we have to reconcile that every single day of our lives. Every morning we wake up, we have to go, this is not a condition. It's not to be. It's not up to me. But what he wants for me is to walk blameless before him so that I can enjoy and experience his provision, his prosperity, so that we will have joy. Then, verse 3, Abram fell on his face and God said to him. Now, this is such a short little verse, but it is so central. This is the right response. What we're going to find out is in this chapter alone, Abram's going to face plant twice. And it's no medical people in the room. It's not just because he's 99, okay? This is a Hebraism of a prostrate posture of worship. He hears this, and he falls on his face to worship. That's always a good starting place, by the way. He fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and shall be of the, uh, the father, and you shall be the father of multitude of nations." No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. Now, this is marvelous. This is God's doing good anthropology. God just so happens, this might shock you, God just so happens to be a good counselor. You might say he's a wonderful counselor. Abram's name means exalted father. But I remind you that Abram was named by his earthly father, Terah, which means moon. Abram's name is exalted father, it's about Terah. Terah names his kid, hey, my dad's awesome. That's what he named his kid. I'm going to name you, my dad's awesome. And so Abram gets to walk around with that. God says, we're going to change the name. We're going to change that from exalted father pointing to Terah. Now we're going to name you father of multitudes, father of nations. 
which still has to be a little vexing because you're like, I'm 99. I don't even have a single kid that's legit, and I'm supposed to be the father of nations. But there's more going on with this. Way back in Genesis chapter 2 in the creation narrative, we're told that God, Yahweh, the spirit of the living God, comes to Adam and he puts his, it's this incredible language, he puts his mouth on Adam and he breathes life into Adam and animates him, gives him the spirit of life. There's a thought, and I don't know a thousand percent that this is true, but I really like it and I want it to be true, therefore I think it's true. I could be wrong, and that's totally fine. I think God also stamps this guttural symbol of <sighs> on Abram's name. We can't really pronounce God's name, Yahweh. In, here in East Texas, we say Yahweh, y'all. But we can't really pronounce it. It's this sort of unpronounceable string of these guttural, breathy syllables. And you'll never hear a Jewish person pronounce it properly because no Jew would actually say the name of God out loud. But it's just this series of breathable syllables. The thought is that God gives him a new name stamped with his own presence. Now, we'll see that fleshed out over and over again in the New Testament in Colossians and Galatians and Romans and Ephesians where I have a new name. I am Eric in Christ, indwelled by his spirit, Romans 8, 9, and finding Revelation 3 and 19. I'm given a new name known only to me and the one that gave it to me. God loves to stamp his children with himself. So we see this name change. God announces himself, I am El Shaddai, and he changes Abram's name because I'm going to make you the father of multitudes. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but you shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Do you see the verb tenses here? I've done it already. In my mind, it's already finished, Abe. What, what, what's the problem? It's already happened. I will make you, verse 6, exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. There is no expiration date on this. To be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God reiterates the terms of what he will do. I will provide land and offspring and blessing. Now, I know this is a contentious topic today. But one day and ultimately, because God says so and it will not expire, that land will become that of Israel and her king. Full stop. I know there are a whole lot of people groups that do not like that and disagree with that. Not my problem. So saith the king of the cosmos. On the other hand, we don't need to be like Sarai and or Hagar and try to give God a nudge. Let's just help God out with that whole reclaiming Israel thing. Now stop that. Now stop that right now. God has never needed our help. He's got this. Verse 8, and I will give to you your offspring the land of your sojournings with all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant. There is responsibility of, rep, of response and recognition. You shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant. You shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. At which point, Abram sort of like, you can hear the record scratch. Abram's like, I'm sorry, what was that again? Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Noah got a rainbow. 
How come we get circumcision? Like, what in the world? He's like, Noah, for seriousness? I got. Listen to what God says. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Abram's going, whew, all those boys, that's going to be a bad day. And God goes, not finished. You shall be circumcised. Oh, maybe just a little. No, in the flesh of your And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Even you, Abraham. Oh, that becomes a very weird family meeting. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generation, whether born in your house or bought with your money from a foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who was born in your house and he was bought with money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Oh, just to make it more formal. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be, <clears throat> pun intended, cut off from his people. <laughs> He has broken my covenant. What is going on? And he didn't expect to come to church this morning and get to talk about anatomy, and we're not going to. Circumcision, what's the deal? It was a common known practice in that part of the world at that time in the world. But circumcision was a particularly gruesome practice always done by the priests to set them off or these Canaanite cults. Circumcision would happen, and they were set off. They were different. God takes a gruesome grotesque, and he redeems it. Something they would have understood. Oh, it's not just some of the priests in your household, because there are none. All the men will be circumcised, even you, Abraham. Now, in Hebrews chapter 11, Abraham gets identified as the man of faith. But candidly, I've always kind of thought, nah, it was the dudes in his house that had a greater faith. I mean, listen, Abram's 99 years old, and he's coming at you like, be still. Now be still. You're like, I don't know, man. God is faithful. Not so much you, Abraham. Uh, Every single one of them is going to be set apart. They are going to be distinct, and this will be the outward sign of an inner reality. Deuteronomy chapter 30, Galatians, Colossians, Ephesians all make it clear that circumcision was always supposed to be an outward sign of an inward reality. Something internally, spiritually, was grotesquely cut away. It's a very, very visceral symbol that there is a strength of person that is cut aside and taken away. I want you to hear that. It is an intentional, volitional, voluntary surrender of my perceived strength. My lineage, my legacy is cut away and discarded as grotesque trash. Because what we're saying is when we are circumcised of heart, the old dead thing that thinks it's strong, that thinks it's sufficient, must be cut away. Because anytime we rely on our own sufficiency, on our own strength, we inevitably sin. And that has to be cut off and discarded as the gross trash that it is. God says, you're going to do this, this outward symbol, so that you will ever, ever, ever be telling your children and their children and their children about the faithfulness of God. See, an eight-day-year-old boy doesn't have a whole lot of say in the matter, nor does he have understanding. But the idea is that this boy will be brought up and in the development, doctrinally, his parents will say, oh, let me tell you why. 
Because our God is El Shaddai. He is the all-powerful, almighty. He's the all-sufficient. You're going to come to think one day, little Shlomo, you're going to begin to think, little Moshe, that you have strength, but you don't. It was cut away, and it's gone. And the faithfulness will continue from your line to the next. Because what we know, the book of Judges is the cookbook. It is the recipe that says how to destroy a civilization. Fail to teach the children of the faithfulness of God and you will destroy every civilization and society. Judges is just a cookbook. And so God says, I want you to have this very visceral sign that you will pass this down to your children, that you will lead them ever increasingly into a growing relationship with Yahweh. Abraham, get started. Verse 15, And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. Again, the name means princess. Now the name means Princess. This is why I really do take it that there's just sort of an audible reminder of the presence and the stamp of the Spirit of God. It's just a breath added to the end of her name. God changes Abram's name. God changes Sarah's name. God gets a name from Hagar. God reveals his name, El Shaddai. He says in verse 16, I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abram fell on his face. He's getting pretty good at this. I still think there's three in this chapter. I think when God said circumcision, I think Abe went down. I think here again, Abram falls on his face, but this is a very different reaction. Abram fell on his face and laughed. <laughs> He laughed and he said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? You get the idea, Abram's on his face going, <laughs> God, listen, I know you're almighty and all sufficient. I get it. But have you seen me? Have you seen her? Like, I can't even imagine. And God's like, you don't have to. It's already done. Abram's like, okay, we'll see. Verse 18, and Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Can't you just bless my son? By the way, Ishmael's 13 years old. Can't you just take him? God says, no, I have a promise, and it will come through a person that I designate from you and Sarai together. God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Itzhak which means laughter. Oh, you're going to laugh? We're just going to name your kid that. Itzhak means he laughs or laughter because Abram laughs about it. Later in chapter 18, Sarah's going to laugh about it and God says, oh, this is going to be a living reminder of my faithfulness. I am not going to zap you for that question, Abram. In fact, what's even more shocking, Abram doesn't get approached by God at the beginning of chapter 17 and told, what is this mess you have made with this Egyptian woman? Boom, you're toast. God doesn't do that. He doesn't respond that way here. See, what do you think about when you think about God? This is how he responds. I will call his name Isaac. I will name him. Why? Because <laughs> I'm his father. You, you, you can't do this. This is, in a sense, a, pre, a prefiguring, a miraculous conception from that which was dead I will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have, play on words, heard you, because that's Ishmael's name. As for I listen, I'm listening, you might say. 
Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. Isn't that amazing? What we intend for evil or to help God out, God superintends for good. Now, there has been enmity between the offspring of Ishmael and those of Isaac for, let's see, carry the one, 3,000 years. There is still problems there. Ishmael, however, is blessed almost immediately. He gets 12 sons, and they become nations, and they expand, and they increase until they're had to be told to go east. Isaac takes a long time to be born. It's 13 years, 14 years after Ishmael's on the scene, and then it takes a long time for Isaac to have a couple sons, and they're both a flaming dumpster fire of deception and deceit and lies and wreckage. And then finally, Jacob has 12 sons. God's undeterred whatsoever. I will make Ishmael into a great nation, but I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. Oh, the clock is ticking, Abraham. Now we've got some specificity. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house and or bought with his money, every male among the mount of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of the foreskins that very day as God had said to him. We get a lot of specificity about Abram's obedience because Moses wants us to know that that God, you know, the one right over there that we can see burning and on fire and in a cloud, he's to be obeyed. But he's also good. But he's to be obeyed. And he's also good. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. We get it, Moses. Can we move on to the, move on a little bit? That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. They effected this external sign of an internal reality. The entire household of Abram, now Abraham, was supposed to be a microcosm, a mini outpost of what the righteousness and the ethic and the philosophy of Yahweh was like. I want every man to be a priest. That's what I want to begin. That's what this world needs. People who rightly and regularly recognize their God and live accordingly. So let me just see if I can land this plane very briefly with some implications here from Genesis chapter 17. I want to remind us that our big idea has been that God is faithful. So what do you do? What do you and I take away? What implications can we root into our minds from this? Number one goes like this. Fall on your face before God. Now, you're not going to do that, and I get it, and that's okay, because the falling really isn't the point. On your face really isn't even the point. The key to that little expression is the before Godness. Sunday afternoon's coming. And you will forget that you are before God. You will. You must walk blamelessly before God. Not for His sake. For your sake. These are the times we have to be reminded and be ready to worship God because of His awesomeness, His sovereignty, and His goodness. This is good for us, and God knows that. It reminds us when we are in worship that we are not in control, and we do not have the responsibility of running the cosmos or even our own individual crazy little lives. It reminds us of what he is and what he's like and what he's done and what he says and what he thinks about us and what he's done for us. Listen, I get it. 
All of us, me first, we are prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. It happens to all of us with all sorts of frequency. We either get distracted or we get busy or more often than not, we fall into a pattern of faithlessness that ultimately produces sin and then we hide from God because we think he's disappointed or we think we've got to clean up our mess. That's bad theology. What do you think about when you think about God? This passage reminds us that God is faithful. It's what he is and it's what he's like. And we all have a tendency to misunderstand his grace and his mercy when we feel like we have to sit in time out. I'm just going to sit and simmer in my own sin grease until I finally feel like I've been miserable enough and then I'll, you know, have a conversation with God. That's not God. That kind of God doesn't exist. We don't ever have to sit in time out. We say, think, do things, and we confess, God, that's the kind of person I am in my own strength. But would you cut that away? And he has. It's also okay and even necessary to be honest before our God. Abraham said, God, I don't doubt that you can do this. I'm seriously doubting that I can, and I'm pretty sure that she can't either because, I mean, it's been 90 years. And, I mean, I got Ishmael, if you know what I'm talking about. You can be honest with God. He already knows. And express your fears, your doubts, your reservations, even your frustrations. It's okay. He's El Shaddai. He's almighty. He's all sufficient. Talk to him before you talk to anybody else. Secondly, it goes like this. Raise your Ebenezer. It's a Hebrew term, Ebenezer. It's a standing stone. These standing stones of the Old Testament were literal structures that were to remind the covenant community of the, face, of the faithfulness of God despite their undeservedness. We're going to have an Ebenezer just this morning when we go downstairs and have believers' baptism in the coffee garden. It's a communal coming together to watch and celebrate the death of the old self and the newness of life in the person that emerges from a conversion experience. We have to remind ourselves of those markers and several others with frequency not just by thinking about it every now and then. We need actual, literal reminders of the faithfulness of God to break in and intrude upon our otherwise busy schedules of godlessness. And it happens to all of us. I used to have, I asked for it to be made, I wanted a pillowcase that was not just printed, but that was embroidered, that said, raised to walk in newness of life. But then I realized that it was actually leaving like, you know, an imprint on my face. And I'm walking around and I had this like embroidered. And I was like, no. But I wanted that every morning. Every morning was like a little mini resurrection. This morning, I am raised to walk in newness of life, to take captive every thought. I need that pillowcase in one way or another. I need that daily persistent intrusion. I need that little Ebenezer. In extremely practical terms, walking wisely, walking blamelessly before God, starts with worship. Yes, I certainly mean gathering together in worship contexts corporately on the weekends. Absolutely, I mean that. But I think worship more persistently, regularly, rightly recognizing your God. Having a persistent conversation where you think he's getting bored, he's not. Have running dialogue out loud or silently. Walk blamelessly, but you can't unless you are before your God. Third point. The virtuous life is the only life that works. I'm not saying if you do good, it will go good for you. No, you might suffer and die. That happens. 
Can I get more practical, more personal? Sometimes Jesus makes martyrs of folks, and he never apologizes. But he is worth it. But what I am telling you with absolute, definitive, biblical sincerity and accuracy is the virtuous life is the only life that works. It's the only pattern and framework of life that can actually produce fulfillment and therefore joy. See, we say this all the time. Joy is the outcome of fulfillment. Our culture, our context, our society gets it backwards. They think you have to pursue joy at all costs. You have to find your joy, find your joy, find your happiness, and you never, ever will. Joy only comes as the product and the outflow of fulfillment and the virtuous life. Not being legalistic and and goody two-shoes and Pollyanna. No, the life that God calls us to is the only kind of life that actually produces fulfillment and the outworking is joy. In other words, to sound very old school puritanical, but it's true, obedience is itself its own reward. Please don't remember that 17 comes after 15. Now, I know that you know that. But Abram is declared righteous in chapter 15 already. He's declared righteous. He believes and God credits him as righteousness. But now God tells him to live according to who he already is. In a sense, be and behave who you are. In a sense, God's word to Abram is the same as it is to us. I see you. I know you. I love you. I have a wonderful plan for your life. Live like that's true because I love you. And it is true. See, God is faithful. How is this actually going to change us? How is this time together on all three floors and watching at home, how is this actually going to change us? (laughs) You're not going to believe this, what the Bible says. This is all about Jesus. This is all about Jesus. He became a curse. Now, we hear that, and we don't quite understand it. So let me delicately as I can nuance this and explain. When the New Testament says that he made him Jesus who knew no sin to be sin so that we might be the righteousness of God. When Isaiah is quoted by Paul, when Jeremiah is quoted by Paul, when Ezekiel is quoted by Paul to say again and again and again, Messiah was cut off. The creator king of the cosmos who spoke into being all that exists became that grotesque symbol of your strength and self-reliance. He became that. And it was cut off as the grotesque trash that it was. That's your Jesus. And we who believe are marked with an outward symbol in believer's baptism because of that inward reality. That's been cut off because it became a person and that person died and that person was buried but that person rose again. That's why we have baptism. In the old covenant, they would have the annual festival celebration of the faithfulness of God with Passover. Every year, Passover. Ah, but in the New Testament, we have it as often as we gather together. It is communion. Tell us about the life and the death of the Son of God. In the Old Testament, they had an initiation rite called circumcision that was saying something fleshy, something strength and pseudo-sufficient has been cut away. In the New Testament, our initiation rite is believer's baptism. Where you're buried with Christ in baptism, dead. Not mostly dead all day, dead, dead. 
raised to walk in newness of life, blamelessly before your God. This is the only life that works, and God is faithful. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you for this passage that points us to and prepares us for our Savior, our King, our Lord, our champion, and our brother. I do pray, Father, from anyone in this room or on the first floor or on the third floor watching remotely, if they have not experienced conversion where their self-sufficiency and strength has been cut away, placed into and onto the very Son of God himself, would you do for them what you have done for us? Usher them out of death into life, out of darkness into light, and may they be saved. Would they have the courage to speak with someone they know or love or trust about that. And for the rest of us, Father, would you remind us as God continued to remind Abram that you are our God. You see us, you know us, you love us. You will get done what you promise and you are faithful. Would you, by the indwelling of your spirit, by the surrounding of your people, through the teaching of your word, help us to walk before you blamelessly. We pray all these things, Father, the only way we can, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.